The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushduni had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Baptism and Citizenship Chalcedon Position Paper, Number 37 Churchmen have long discussed, debated, and analyzed the meaning of baptism in terms of the church. They have called attention to its meaning in terms of regeneration, purification, and more. All these emphases are important, and it is not our intention to displace or downgrade them in calling attention to another and central meaning. Baptism is an act of citizenship. In the early church, it was not only an act of citizenship in Christ's kingdom, but it involved what was in the eyes of the Roman Empire, a treasonable affirmation. The New Testament tells us that baptism is, quote, in the name of the Lord Jesus, unquote. Acts 19, 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Acts 8.16 The name stands for the person, authority, and power, so that baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus is into citizenship or membership in His person, authority, and power, and hence Christians face the world as citizens of the kingdom of God and as ambassadors thereof. In the early church, Christians faced the requirement of Rome to be a licensed religion with an imperial certificate in their meeting place. To gain that certificate meant an affirmation of subjection to the empire. The required confession was, quote, Caesar is Lord, unquote. As Polycarp faced martyrdom for refusing that confession, 
The imperial magistrate, doing his best to persuade the aged Christian, asked him, quote, What harm is there in saying, Caesar is Lord? Unquote. As the historian J.N.D. Kelly commented, quote, The acclamation, Curios Kaiser, would seem to have been a popular one in the civic cult of the Roman Empire, and Christians were no doubt conscious of the implicit denial of it contained in their own Curious Isus, unquote. Early Christian Creeds, page 15. In fact, the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, was the baptismal confession of the early church. Acts 8, 36-38, Philippians 2, 9-11. Roman boasted of being the conqueror of the world, and its emperors were gods. The early church countered this. 1 John four fifteen declares, quote, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Unquote. Every believer was given a higher status than the emperor. As against the emperor as the world conqueror, John declares, quote, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Unquote. 1 John 5, 5. Since one meaning of Lord is God, the implications of the baptismal confession are obvious. Every believer confessed a greater and higher citizenship in a kingdom which would overcome and outlast all others. In terms of his faith, he held, quote, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, unquote. Revelation 11:15 The joy of Pentecost is inseparable from this faith so intense was this faith in the Lord in subjection to the great king of kings that Ignatius wrote in a letter trial 9 quote, "Be deaf when anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ" unquote. The horror of Rome in facing these Christians can be seen in part by the irritation of modern statists as they face American Christians on trial for refusing status controls. Rome recognized no power and no loyalty beyond itself. Even the gods of Rome were made gods by resolution of the Senate, and were thus subordinate to the empire. The idea of a power greater than and over the Roman Empire was anathema. This, however, was precisely the faith of the early church. Jesus Christ, they held, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. It is difficult to imagine a faith which was more an affront to Rome. Christians declared to one and all that Jesus Christ is the universal and cosmic Lord. He is Lord not only over the church, the individual, and the family, but over the state, the arts and sciences, economics, education, and all things else. All things must either serve Christ the Lord or be judged by Him. So great is His overlordship that He will not only judge all things in time as Lord and ruler, but, at the last, in the general resurrection of the dead, quote, He will judge the world, unquote, Acts 17.31. When Paul spoke of this, the Athenians on Mars Hill turned away. The idea of such a Lord was too much for them. It should be now apparent what baptism meant to the early church and to Rome. It was an act of membership 
of citizenship in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the public declaration of a higher loyalty and a higher obedience. It was baptism into Christ and His kingdom, of which the local church was a visible outpost. It is thus a seriously misplaced emphasis to speak of being baptized into the church. This is a secondary aspect. Baptism is essentially into Christ and His kingdom. After baptism, a person was regarded as being, quote, in Christ, unquote, or, quote, in the Lord, unquote. Citizenship in the Roman Empire in the New Testament era was a privilege highly prized. Most people were subjects, not citizens. When the Roman chief captain in Jerusalem learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, he said, quote, With a great sum obtained I this freedom, unquote. In example, Roman citizenship, and Paul answered, quote, but I was free-born, unquote. In example, born a citizen, Acts twenty-two twenty-eight. To lay hands on a Roman citizen could be dangerous. He was a privileged person. But now these Christians were claiming a higher citizenship with greater powers and one which is open to every man. Paul in Philippians 3, 20 declares, quote, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. The word conversation is a translation for the Greek polituma, which means citizenship or commonwealth. The word conversation is an aspect of its meaning. Members of a family have a common life, conversation, and citizenship. To be a citizen of heaven and the kingdom of God is to have a conversation with the Lord and with fellow members in Him, to be members of Him and of one another and to be together a commonwealth and kingdom and citizens thereof. Hence, the call to baptism is a call to regeneration and to citizenship in Christ and His kingdom. Peter, in Acts 2.38, declares, quote, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Unquote. Name meant person. To be baptized into the name of Jesus means to be baptized in his body, his life, into citizenship and membership in his kingdom. This tells us, too, what it meant to confess, quote, Caesar is Lord, unquote, Curios Kaiser. It meant confessing that Caesar is God and that our highest allegiance is to Caesar. This is a confession which some pastors and churches are making in so doing. They are implicitly denying that Jesus Christ is their Lord. Then, and until recently, the invocation of a name was the invocation of one's Lord. We have an echo of this in the old expression, quote, Open in the name of the law, unquote. An example, in the name of the ruling power. To invoke the name was to swear allegiance to one's king and lord. It also invoked aid and protection and the king's servants could claim the immunities of the king by declaring that they acted in the name of the king. Hence, the Christian prays in Jesus' name, the name of power at the throne. He calls himself a Christian, and so claims the protection of the name and citizenship in the Lord's kingdom. Truly to say that, quote, Jesus Christ is Lord, unquote, is to reveal our faithfulness and obedience to him. It means that our conversation, 
or citizenship is manifest in all our being in words, thought, and deed. Moreover, as Paul makes clear, quote, No man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It is the revelation of the power of the kingdom in and through him. The life of all such is a manifestation of the Lord, and they are like men, quote, having the Lamb's Father's name written in their foreheads, unquote. Revelation 14, 1. The baptized confess their citizenship in the name, in the Lord, in all their being. Citizenship requires allegiance and loyalty, faithfulness to the Lord of the realm, who in turn confesses, knows, and protects them. Paul thus says, quote, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Unquote. 2 Timothy 2.19 The Didache, before giving instructions about baptism, spoke at length of the two ways, the way of obedience to the every word of God, Matthew 4.4, 4, the way of life, as against the way of death, and then said, quote, Now concerning baptism, baptize as follows, when you have rehearsed the aforesaid teaching, unquote. In other words, baptism is into a way of life as set forth in the person of Christ and the righteousness of God, his law. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 3.21 when he writes, Baptism is, quote, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, unquote. An example, not merely an external cleansing of the body like a bath, but a new life in Christ. Quote, the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, unquote. Christ, having made atonement for us, gives us also the new life of the resurrection. Therefore, as the faithful and obedient people of the Lord, we have a good conscience because we manifest God's righteousness as set forth in his law word and thereby follow Christ as members of his new humanity. The old humanity of the first Adam has a common life, conversation, and citizenship in sin and death. The new humanity of the last Adam has a common life, conversation, and citizenship in Jesus Christ. The rulers of the old humanity recognize only one loyalty and one citizenship to themselves. All men, says John, are summoned by this old world power to acknowledge its power and to be marked or branded as the possession of this humanistic power. This old power seeks total control over humanity and exclusive control to the point that, quote, no man might buy or sell, unquote, or have a church or Christian school except under its control. Revelation 12, 16 through 18. However, the early church saw all men as God's creation and therefore under God and His law, and hence under God's judgment. For them, the word of God was clear on this matter. Quote, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Unquote. Revelation eleven fifteen. Hence, says John, the rejoicing in heaven, the triumph of the Lord is assured. This means that all Christians are by baptism members of Christ 
and citizens of the kingdom of God. They are therefore, quote, more than conquerors, unquote, in Christ. Romans 8, 37. In antiquity, men wore the garb of their rank. In example, their clothing was a badge indicating who they were and what their status was. Sumptuary laws required the same kind of identification well into the modern era and made it illegal for a man or a woman to dress above his rank. St. Paul has an amazing reference to this practice. In Galatians 3.27, he writes, quote, For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, unquote. This means we wear the marks of membership, citizenship, in the royal household of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The parable of the wedding feast tells us the same thing. Matthew 22, 1-14 No man has any place in the royal court unless he is one who puts on the raiment of the king. An example is a member of the family of the king in word, thought, and deed. Baptism is thus the act of citizenship, of membership. As citizens of the great kingdom of God, we pay our tax, the tithe, to the king and his work, and above and over the tax we bring our gifts and offerings. Because we belong to the king, our children too must be offered to him, as his to take and use with us, and this is the true meaning of infant circumcision and then baptism. As citizens of the Lord's realm, we place all other allegiances under our duty to the Lord. Thus we obey rulers in civil government, not because they require it, but because the Lord requires it, and only as far as His word permits. Our obedience is thus not for the state's sake, but, quote, for conscience' sake, unquote. Romans 13:5. As a part of our baptismal requirement of obedience unto, quote, a good conscience toward God, unquote. 1 Peter 3, 21. As we have seen in antiquity, very few men were citizens of a country. Only a privileged few had that status, and the power and wealth that mark citizenship. Paul tells us that the mark of baptism is the gift of the Spirit, and all the wealth and power which the king gives to the royal family. Quote, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 12.13 so great was the early Christian sense of wealth, power, and joy in the Savior King that Paul could say to King Agrippa, quote, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds, unquote, or chains, Acts twenty six twenty nine. It was this recognition of power that made the early Christians, quote, more than conquerors, Unquote. Only the same faith and citizenship can triumph today, February 1983. State Interest versus Public Interest, Chalcedon Position Paper, number 38. In a recent trial in a federal court, questions by the state attorney gave me an opportunity to enter into the record some thoughts which would otherwise have been objected to by the state. Constant reference had been made about the, quote, compelling state interest, unquote, which ostensibly made state intervention into the life of the church and its schools a necessity. 
the most compelling state interest should be freedom with justice. As a matter of fact, in my earliest school days, this was stressed. The climax of the Pledge of Allegiance states the purpose of the United States, of the Federal Union, as, quote, liberty and justice for all, unquote. Now, however, a, quote, compelling state interest, unquote, means controls. The obvious fact in these trials is that Christian schools are providing markedly superior teaching in both moral training and in academic disciplines. The state schools are usually a nightmare of lawlessness and ignorance and have given the United States its highest rate of illiteracy in its history. The, quote, compelling state interest, unquote, of which the state attorneys speak is the power to control. A century ago in France, Leon Gambetta made it clear that equality was more important to the state than freedom and that both equality and liberty had to give way to fraternity, which for him was force. He said, quote, force is an indivisible element in the grandeur of races, unquote. Basic to fraternity and force for him were state schools. For him, too, morality was to be derived from the politics of the state, not the church. E.M. Ackham, The French Laic Laws, 1879-1889, to New York, Octagon Books, 1967. This was nothing new. When Diocletian further centralized power over the people and began the savage persecution of Christians, he spoke about power to the people. The publicity's theme of his coinage was, quote, Geni populi Romani, unquote. In example, he deified the Roman people even as he enslaved them. The cult of Rome and the Roman people went hand in hand with the enslavement of Rome and of all the people. Michael Grant, The Climax of Rome, Boston, Massachusetts, Little Brown, 1968. The state has long had a habit also of using every occasion to do a little good as an opportunity to advance a great deal of evil. Thus, in late 18th century Austria, Joseph II used the same goals as the French Revolution to centralize his power. The serfs were freed to break the feudal power and strengthen the monarchy. As Biloff noted, quote, both liberty and equality were devices by which the state could be strengthened, unquote. Instead of various levels of feudal power, all citizens were made equally subordinate to a central power and bureaucracy and equally taxable. The age of the French Revolution saw in France and elsewhere temporary or illusory freedoms accompanied by great increases of centralized state power. The illusion was that increased state powers would eliminate ancient evils when in reality they created greater ones. As a result, the, quote, age of absolutism, unquote, ended only to see the beginnings of a new and greater one in the 20th century. Max Beloff, The Age of Absolutism, 1660 to 1815, page 127, etc., New York. Harper, 1962. For a time, the free market extended liberties, but the growing powers of the central state in time suppressed these freedoms. The state, as the new god, was asserting its sovereign powers. This had religious consequences. 
Bismarck in Germany made the state paramount over all things. He was pragmatically a conservative and a liberal, whichever served the state best at the moment. Theodore Fontaine, who described himself as Bismarck's greatest admirer, once said in another context, quote, Bismarck was the greatest despiser of principle that ever existed, unquote. Fritz Stern, Gold and Iron, Bismarck, Blackroder, and the Building of the German Empire, page 280, New York, Knopf, 1977. For Bismarck, the state interest could not be subordinated to any other interest. This is the mark of the statist, whether he calls himself a liberal, conservative, fascist, or radical. All things must be subordinated to the interest of the state. Our rising American fascism clearly manifests this premise in its attack on the freedom of religion. Even Theodore Mommsen was an exponent of such statism. He appealed to deracinated Jews to join the church because, he explained, the nation-state hates all vestiges of particularism. Much later, the Nazis added to this hatred not only the Jews, but all churches. Rosenberg, in the myth of the 20th century, 1931, declared, quote, All German education must be based on the recognition of the fact that it is not Christianity that has brought us morality, but Christianity that owes its enduring values to the German character, unquote. The churches were therefore attacked for opposing the compelling state interest. The Catholic Bishop of Berlin, von Preysing, held to the contrary. Quote, Justice is not derived from the will of the society. There is an eternal right outside man's will and guaranteed by God. Unquote. By the end of 1938, however, the Nazis had suppressed all church schools in Bavaria, Württemberg, Baden, Saxony, Thuringia, Oldenburg, the Saar, and large parts of Prussia and Austria. Religious publications were also suppressed in the U.S. in 1983. Not only are Christian schools under attack, but also religious publishing houses, as witnessed the case of the Presbyterian and Reform Publishing Company. In Germany in the 1930s, it was declared that children are to be trained, quote, as though they had never heard of Christianity, unquote. M. Cyril Bates, Religious Liberty and Inquiry, page 31, New York, De Capo Press, 1972. In the United States, such education has long been the reality of statist education, with humanism as the established religion of the state schools. Now the attack has been launched against Christian schools. The Nazi goal was uniformity. Hence, all particularism was attacked and suppressed. Jews, Christians, gypsies, all alike were anathema. The Jews were identified with hated causes, in example, communism and capitalism, and the same applied to the churches at the time. The same has been even more true and with unequaled barbarism and savagery in the Soviet Union. There, the old revolutionary ideal of liberty, fraternity, and equality is mocked by reality. There is neither fraternity nor liberty, and the only equality is in slavery. 
The status road to the old liberal goals has proven to be the road to hell. The state has insisted upon identifying the state interest with public interest. This means that the state is equated with the people. Such an identification ensures totalitarianism because the state then is the voice and even the incarnation of the people. To oppose the state means to oppose the people, and dissenters are classified as, quote, enemies of the people, unquote. No private concern nor any public concern can then exist. To oppose the state interest is to oppose the will of the people. Because the state interest is at the same time identified with justice and moral concern, a most arrogant Pharisaism ensues. This is presently the position of most bureaucracies the world over. It is certainly the stance in the U.S. of state and federal attorneys as they confront churches and their functions. It is they who speak as the voice of justice and morality, as the guardians of the, quote, public interest, unquote. All too often, as history makes clear, the state interest has been the enemy of the public interest. The statists see a compelling state interest in the control of the spheres of education, economics, religion, and more. Once having assumed the sovereignty or lordship of the state, there is then logically no limitation on either the jurisdiction or the power of the state. Sovereignty or lordship means total and ultimate authority. Those who acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ can then withhold no area of life and thought from his dominion. Given the sovereignty or lordship of the triune God, it follows of necessity that law must proceed from God, because lawmaking is an attribute of sovereignty. Antinomianism is a denial of God's sovereignty and an implicit affirmation of the state's lordship. Sovereignty has been very briefly defined as, quote, complete power, unquote. Clearly, as complete power can only be an attribute of the triune God. Every state claiming sovereignty, however, logically seeks to gain complete power over all things, especially the mind and bodies of men. Such an effort leads to totalitarianism and tyranny. To gain surface compliance to its claim to sovereignty such a state resorts to measures designed to subjugate man. To this, there are two approaches. The first, so ably described by Roland Huntsford of the new totalitarians, is by controlling education. Only the state-controlled and state-approved instruction, which meets the state's needs for conformity, is approved. Since the church is a teaching ministry, this means control of the churches in all aspects of their ministry. The new totalitarians are consummate hypocrites in their war against biblical faith. They mask it with a multitude of bureaucratic concerns, zoning regulations, the need for supervision and regulation, the compelling state interest in all such matters, and so on and on. The Marxists openly persecute biblical faith. The new totalitarians do it by indirection. Second, Marxist totalitarianism relies only secondarily on education and primarily on total terror. By means of torture, slave labor camps, fear, and suppression, the Marxist dictators strive for the total compliance of their peoples. The psalmist, Psalms 115.3, 
tells us that God the Lord is unlike all false gods. Quote, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Unquote. God's sovereignty is undivided. Quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6, 4. God, therefore, requires an undivided allegiance. Quote, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Unquote. Deuteronomy 6, 5. These words by Moses are the mandate for obedience to God's law. Because he is the Lord, the sovereign, the ultimate one, he must be totally obeyed with all our love in all our being. Our Lord, in repeating these words of Deuteronomy 6, 5, thereby confirm the sole sovereignty of God and the full authority of His law. Luke 10, 27. Significantly, Mohammed, while departing from the biblical premises at many points, retains this one, the sovereignty of God. Quote, There is no God but God. Unquote. It was this premise which gave Islam power. Religions which deny the sovereignty of their, quote, God, unquote, become polytheistic. It is logically impossible to ascribe sovereignty to any being other than God and still retain a God in one system. The transfer of sovereignty to the state means that lawmaking and lordship are transferred to the state. The power to make laws is the power to declare things to be good and evil. Since Aristotle's state in his politics is the source of law, his state was also the source of morality. Nazi Germany was emphatic that morality came from the state, not from the Bible. The state schools of America and other countries also see morality as a man-created or state-created thing. Value education is established by these educators on humanistic, statist foundations. All over the world, quote, sovereign, unquote, States are manifesting their tyrannies. The great tyranny, Soviet Russia, brutally and ruthlessly manifests its tyrant power against Christianity and against all dissent in any form. The Western democracies are, in varying degrees, replacing the God of Scripture with themselves and are, in many instances, infringing on or suppressing Christian liberties. Israel indignant at Arab hostility, is repressive of Arab and Christian dissent, while the Arabs are repressive towards Jews and Christians. All self-righteously assert their right to do as they please in terms of compelling state interest. Compelling state interest are essentially and ultimately hostile to God as their rival and to man as a dissenter. We must assert that there is a compelling theological interest in freedom, to acknowledge the sovereignty of and predestination by the triune God is to deny the sovereignty of the state and predestination. In example, total planning and control by the state. Sovereignty and predestination are exclusive attributes. If God is the Lord, if there is no God but God, then neither man nor the state can be the sovereign or Lord. If essential and ultimate determination planning, and control belong to God alone, then no man nor state can assume such a prerogative unto itself. 
men and nations then must acknowledge God's sovereignty, and men and nations must seek to know their place and calling in God's plan. There is then a compelling public interest to know, obey, and serve God, for, quote, man's chief end is to glorify God and to serve Him forever, unquote. March, 1983. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree where he died for you and me. Hello.